From KCRW, you're listening to Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. That's faculty at Cal State L.A. who walked out of their classrooms today. It's the third day of rolling strikes at the California State University system. 23 campuses that make up the nation's largest four-year public university system serve just under half a million students. Unionized faculty are demanding a 12% raise. The Cal State system says it's facing a $1 billion shortfall and can't afford it. KCRW's Megan Jamerson's been reporting on negotiations, and she's on campus right now where she joins us. Hi, Megan. Hey, Steve. What does it look like out there at, uh, at CSULA? Well, I'm right outside the student union where about 300 union faculty members are staging this picket today. They have signs, you know, things that say like, I'm strike. It's in red and white, which are the union's colors. And I was also told by the union, they have faculty from at least five other campuses here. So if people came down from Fresno, Fullerton, Long Beach, San Marcos, it's a very lively group. There was even a mariachi band playing here earlier this morning. All right, so so what did faculty have to say about walking the picket line today? Faculty told me that business cannot continue as usual within the Cal State system. Rafael Gomez is a lecturer here at Cal State LA in the Latin American and Pan-African Studies departments. I mean, this is about justice. Uh, We want to ensure that people are paid dignified wages that allow them to live dignified lives. I also spoke with Teresa Montano, who is a professor at Cal State Northridge, where she's been for over 20 years in the Chicana and Chicano Studies Department. Picketing here on campus is personal for her. I went to school here. Cal State LA is my alma mater. I'm the first in my family to go to the university. No one even thought that a Chicana from South LA could get into any university, right? So this university gave me, and, and Chicano Studies in particular, gave me hope, right? It, it brought me out of uh, poverty. Montano and others told me that they feel like they have to act now in order to ensure that places like Cal State LA and other schools within the system remain financially accessible both for the students here and the faculty that teach them. How is this affecting students there, Megan? Well, this is the last week of lecture before final exams, which start Monday, this coming week. So many of the classes that you might need before those big exams were canceled today. Jocelyn Becerra is a second year biology student that I met at the student union. Only one of two of her lectures today were canceled. So, but for someone facing finals next week, she was very chill about the disruption. But overall, I mean, it's towards the end of the semester, so I feel like it doesn't disrupt as much, but just a little bit of studying might get disrupted. Overall, I would say campus is much quieter than usual. Do do we know how many classes were canceled today? 
We don't yet. Amy Bippis is the interim campus provost, and she told me she doesn't have an estimate yet because professors and lecturers were not required to give the university a heads up if they were going to be joining the picket line. But Bippis did tell me that the library would be open for its normal hours today. She didn't have any word yet on how this strike would affect the athletic department. The striking union members include librarians, counselors, and coaches, and in addition to faculty. And also, there was no maintenance work or construction on campus. That's because the Teamsters Union was also on strike in solidarity today, and they represent trades workers on campus like plumbers, electricians, HVAC technicians. I, I mentioned in the introduction, Megan, that, that the faculty is asking for a 12% raise in trying to keep up with inflation. Cal State, the, the system itself, says it just can't afford it. Dig in a little deeper on the university's response. Absolutely. So the university says that a 12% raise is just not fiscally responsible. And big picture, this issue of raises has really become a debate over whether or not the Cal State system should dip into reserves to pay for raises for the 29,000 faculty the union represents. Now, the Cal State system currently has over a billion dollars in those reserves. A billion, billion with a B. So, so that kind of money is usually just for emergencies in campus infrastructure, is that right? Yes, yes. So the CSU says the raises have to come from the current pot of money that's budgeted for campus operating costs. And at a press conference last week, the vice chancellor for human resources for the Cal State system said that these 12% raises would total $380 million in new costs, which she pointed out is much larger than the entire budget of campuses like Cal State Fresno. So instead of a one-year 12% raise, the CSU is offering faculty a 15% raise over three years. So what does the union then say to that offer, 15% raise over three years? Oh, they're effectively saying no way. And that's because the deal only guarantees a 5% raise for year one of the agreement. Meanwhile, the union is very quick to point out that some CSU campus presidents got raises that were 29%. Also, the chancellor of the CSU has a base pay of $800,000, which adds up to more than a million if you include housing and other perks. Also, Cal Matters did an analysis of Cal State executive pay and found that it has far outpaced lecturer pay in recent years. Meanwhile, an independent state mediator recommended a 7% raise for Cal State faculty, which neither side is happy about. Neither side happy about that. Are, are the negotiations mostly about raises, though, Megan, or are there other issues in the negotiations as well? They are also asking for caps on class sizes, extended paid parental leave, more gender-inclusive bathrooms and mental health services. And back to economics again, they want to raise the minimum floor on wages for lecturers. I spoke to a lecturer, Marina del Carmen Unda, is a lecturer in the Chicana and Latina Studies Department at Cal State LA. After taxes, she takes home 38000 a year. I'm not even asking for a lot. Like, I just literally want to be able to afford rent for a one-bedroom apartment here. I'm just asking for like a living wage. So far, the Cal State system has not addressed raising the minimum salary for lecturers in negotiations. And, and what about these walkouts, Megan? There have been these rolling one-day walkouts over at Cal State campuses. Today it's in LA. Are, are they making a difference? Is there any hope for a, a breakthrough here? 
You know, it's really hard to tell if it is making a difference. There are no new negotiations scheduled since the strikes began. Tomorrow, there will be one last strike up at Sacramento State, and that's the last for the walkouts planned for now. But the union has made the decision, you know, to start with only these, only these four out of the 23 campuses so that there's room for escalation if necessary. All right, KCRW's Megan Jamerson reporting from Cal State LA. Megan, thanks. Thank you. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. More now from Greater L.A. and KCRW. I'm Steve Chiatakis. In about eight minutes, we'll get the skinny from our foodie regular, Mona Holmes, about the closing of a Silver Lake institution, a sad occasion for sure, and a jumping-off point for what we're going to hear about right now, sadness writ large. Before Elon Musk, back when Twitter was still Twitter, one user started sharing sightings of folks crying in public. Not long after that, sad girl culture came along, and it seemed like everyone online was talking about being sad, about crying. And you know what? It was okay. Brandon Stosi, founder of the website The Creative Independent, embraced that sad culture and edited a new book called Sad Happens, A Celebration of Tears. It brings together 115 essays on the subject. And our producer, Juliana Mayo, spoke with Stosi about compiling stories of sadness. I should say from the very beginning that we have known each other for a long time. I met you in a basement at a black metal <laughs> listening party in the year 2006, I think. Yeah, so. I think it's a suitable place for who, who knew you like many, you know, many years later, I'd be writing a book about crying, but I think black metal is um, prime territory for that. Let's talk about the beginnings of this book because I'm really into that it's kind of like birthed from Twitter. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Sure. Yeah. Early on, you know, I, I I just started had tweeting things about people crying or about sadness, and it kind of started when I still worked at Pitchfork, so quite a long time ago. Um, and there was that Bon Iver song, Holocene, and I would always joke about how if you play that song anything that you came across would be sad. Like you could just see the most <laughs> commonplace thing and suddenly it's depressing. Like someone's leaving work for the day, you know, you see someone like wrapping up a computer or like somebody eating. So I would just start doing things like, I remember one was guy doing push-ups the night before his high school reunion, like Holocene. It's just like kind of these like moments <laughs> that seem pathetic or sad or whatever. And then people thought it was funny. So I just kept doing that. But then one day I was jogging and I saw someone crying. So I just wrote jogging, you know, saw some guy crying while jogging or whatever. And then all these people responded, oh, yeah, like I, I, you know, I cry when I run too. And it became this thing. And then I sort of realized with that, hey, there's maybe there's something to this. And some person from like a really small poetry press wrote me and they're like, you know, your tweets are kind of like little poems or something. Maybe would you be into doing a chat book, you know, featuring these tweets? So I reached out to my friend Rose Lazar, who I, I'd known when I was um, living in Buffalo, which is like another very prime territory for um, crying. 
And I said to her, like, <laughs> hey, would you want to illustrate like a couple of these tweets? And, you know, because I, you know, I said, I've been focusing on the things that are interesting to me in them, but maybe you can just like read the tweet and then whatever you think is the interesting part of it, draw something from it. And so it's kind of started with that. And then from there, we just kind of kept expanding and it kept growing. And then um, my friend Matt, who's in the band The National, um, he was like, oh, this is a really interesting project. Could I like contribute something to it? And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, maybe it shouldn't just be tweets and it shouldn't just be one person because obviously crying, well, I would say everyone cries, but I've learned while doing this book that not everyone does cry, but I would say most people cry. And so, <laughs> and people cry for different reasons. And so then it just seemed to make sense to have more people in it. Yeah, I, I guess I wanna talk about that too because it's a very collaborative book, right? There's 115 contributors and this mm -hmm. feels like a through line of, of your work. Like you're known for curation and editing and all of these things. You even talk a lot about, um, I don't know, throwing shows in your teens and your parents' backyard, which is also a really collaborative thing. And I wonder if you can talk about kind of the roots of that and why that is um, such a such a prominent part of the work that you do. Sure. I, I was thinking, you know, now that I have a 13-year-old kid and I think about how when I was 13, I started a zine and the impulse was, you know, I lived in a town of 800 people where there was really nobody else into punk or into hardcore or whatever. And I discovered it with my friend Moss who lived about like 40 minutes away. So I wouldn't see him that often, but we, we discovered through like an older sister, his older sister who had, you know, like some seven seconds cassettes and like minor threat stuff. And so we kind of found it that way. But so really like for me, the, the zine was an impulse to meet people that were into other things that I was into and to have some kind of like lifeline outside of um, Chatsworth, New Jersey or outside of the Pine Barrens. And now that I have this 13 year old son and I just see how much time he spends talking to his friends and, you know, we're living in, we live in Brooklyn. And so sometimes they'll come home on the subway from school and suddenly there's like 10, 13 year old boys in my house. And I'm just like, man, this is like this community of his. And I didn't have a community in that town. And so I tried to create one through doing a zine. And so the zine itself became a collaborative thing where I, you know, say, hey, open up. This is open for submissions. If you want to contribute like a record review or contribute a review of your hometown or, you know, we would review like toothpaste or just anything, you know, and just have people <laughs> kind of contribute to it. And then, you know, I met this guy, Greg, uh, Jacobson, who ended up doing the illustrations and he was in Chicago. So it became a, a super collaborative project. But I do think the impulse really goes back to that early uh, moment. Like the same thing with putting shows on was because there were no venues in my town. So I was like, all right, I'm going to put on a show. But it's a very hard thing to do by yourself. Um, and so like I was like, hey, my friend Ed Chang knew how to do sound. So I was like, hey, Ed, can you do sound? I can't do sound. And someone knew someone who had like... Um, not a stage, but a hay truck. Like, hey, we well, can use this as the stage. And so it became like a community effort. And mm -hmm. then I've always just enjoyed that. It's always been fun. I think it's less stressful um, than if you're just up there by yourself as well. And that sort of yeah. collaborative impulse. Um, and there's certain things that you not, you know, not everybody can do everything on their own and you don't know how to do everything. So like with this book, Rose is someone I've always been friends with and always wanted to do a project with. We never quite found the right moment and this felt like it and her illustrations would work. And then, you know, once Matt was in it, he's like, hey, we should ask, he's like, what about Phoebe? So we asked Phoebe Bridgers to do something and she did something. And then we kind of, they were, those were the first two contributors and that was like four years ago or five years, four years ago, I'd say. And then over that time, it just kind of kept growing. And then Rose and I were like, hey, we have too many musicians. We should ask other kinds of people. So we kind of just like kept following that trail and, and adding more and more people. Um, but yeah, I think that's the impulse. It's just always, it's always been fun for me 
to work with friends on things. And I think that's mm-hmm. the, the main thing is it's usually people I know on some level, not always, or people I come to know. But the one thing that was really different with this book was one day I just said, I'm going to open up my DMs and um, on Twitter. And I did a tweet that was, you know, essentially said, if you have a job or something that puts you in contact with crying, you know, please hit me up in my DMs. I'm writing a book about crying. And that was where, you know, a zookeeper wrote me and like, a, you know, school teachers and someone who worked at a crematorium. So suddenly all these strangers were reaching out and I was really, you know, s- sort of sorting through hundreds of replies and finding the ones that made the most sense and, you know, reaching out to people and um, building it out that way. And so that was really something that's maybe um, something I haven't done so much before where I just completely go for the strength, you know, like working with people I've never met whose names I don't even know how to pronounce. Like they were doing an audio book of this book and I couldn't pronounce half the people's names. I'm like, I don't even, I've never met this person. It's just someone that hit me up and was like, hey, I work in a vintage clothing store and when old people sell their, the clothing of their, like, you know, donate the clothing of their dead spouse. It's really sad, you know, that kind of stuff. And But I don't yeah. really know how to say their name. Let's talk about some of your Los Angeles contributors and where they sure. cried. Sasha Gray, who is a musician and a writer and an actor and a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Um, she contributed and she talks about crying in her house. We are born crying. The fluid from our mother's womb expelled from our lungs as we take our first breath. It's how we communicate before we can speak. When we get older, crying can make us feel incredibly helpless, like a young child. My last good cry was recent. I was slightly curled on the couch, all of my limbs squeezing in toward my chest. This should paint a picture for you that these were sad tears. Yeah, Sasha's someone I've known for a long, long time and is someone I've worked with on a bunch of projects over the years. Um, Mm -hmm. We worked on like a photo project together a long time ago. She's contributed there's some books on creativity that I wrote. I remember like years ago, she was telling me like certain things she learned being um, an actor, like learning like to cry on command or do this or that on command. So I was like, hey, you wanna contribute something to this? Thinking she would write more about like maybe, you know, having to cry in a film or cry on like whatever. And then she wrote something very different. I think that was, that's been a fun part is like, if you kind of maybe assume like, oh, this person's gonna give me this and then they, they surprise you with something quite different. There's another lovely piece in Sad Happens, and it's by Morale. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Most of my tears nowadays stem from my frustrations with the music industry and the slow disintegration of any sort of support system for artists outside of the mainstream. This is a constant topic in my therapy sessions. This feeling of helplessness luckily diminishes whenever I'm in community spaces and supportive underground zones. The exchange of appreciation and support within a community helps you feel like even though you might be hindered in some ways due to isolating health issues, that what you are doing is impactful and is helping to fertilize the ecosystem. Good music can be transcendent. It helps reset me. That's the thing. In between the tears, I'm still a member of the music ecosystem. Yeah, her piece is, I think it's incredible because it talks about, you know, a public, a a, a very public suicide and about, um, like lack of support within an industry that I do think is an industry that, I mean, no industry is great, <laughs> I, I would say, but I think there's a certain part of the music industry where it is like every person for themselves in a lot of way. And I think there's often this feeling of like, these things started through community, like, you know, even talking earlier when I was saying, yeah, my friend Moss and I like discovered Minor Threat or this or that, or like, you mm-hmm. know, Discord records basically being like, hey, we're documenting a, a community in a scene. And I think the internet like removed a lot of that. So there's like, there's people are kind of maybe more um, separate 
or more hold up to their computers or whatever. And, and there's like a scarcity issue where there's so many musicians, um, so much music being made, so much stuff. So I think it's a very, it's a very hard place to survive in. And I do think like, as she writes in that, a lot of it too is that it's one of these weird industries like architecture or something where it is still very like, um, like this kind of old, old version of like, well, it's like, you know, I'm a man who runs this label or this, that. And there's obviously like women who run labels and very, you know, tons and tons of women doing amazing things in the music industry, but there's still these dudes that are such bros in it. Um, that is always like mind blowing to me. Like it's just real, like this sort of frat boy uh, mentality within a industry that's supposed to be creative and thoughtful and artistic, but it's like some of the people that are running the show. Yeah. They're just like these guys that are just kind of the worst. That was one where like, she's someone I know from her music and she works at a label big data and it's like just a really cool person. And then I'd seen her tweet something about crying and I said, Hey, would you want to write something for this book? So like sometimes I was kind of like, not that I was on the look, but if someone sort of had this, they wrote something where they were um, being vulnerable online mm -hmm. or whatever. I was like, Hey, maybe you would want to write, you know, write something about crying. Some of it definitely made me laugh and some of it definitely made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty sad. There's parts of it. I mean, things that I, when I was editing, I was crying. You know, there's mm -hmm. a piece in there, a woman whose um, mother, you know, is, has dementia and she's essentially like, we never got to like make up or like, you know, bury the hatchet kind of thing. And now my mother's still alive, but I can't really, we can't, she can't forgive me and I can't, I could forgive her, but she doesn't understand what it means kind of thing. And I was like, damn, that's like a, a, a scenario I'd never even thought of. And while I was editing yeah. that, I was crying. I was like, this is really, really hard because you, someone dying is hard enough, but the person's still there and you're just like, all right, I'm already too late, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's some like pretty intense things. And I was sort of surprised that, not surprised, but thankful the only prompt I gave people was like, tell me a story of a time you cried. <laughs> like, it was like really open. And then people mm -hmm. would respond to that in very different ways. I wonder how compiling all of these sad tales or tales of crying or funny tales, um, how that has shaped how you feel about, about crying and about sadness. Well, I think one thing that I've realized is that it's, it is really useful for people to talk about it. And I just had actually like, someone wrote me today just basically saying <clears throat> they have a hard time crying, but they read the book. And it kind of like brought up a lot of emotion and they didn't actually cry, but they said they felt the emotions you would feel if you did cry, you know, and then they, and they could even just to share something like that, or like someone else who's in the book said they were at this kind of like conference. And they talked about this book and, and mentioned like this, you know, medical, medical diagnosis they were really worried about. And then someone else sort of shared theirs. And then they felt a little bit more like, all right, there's someone else going through this too. So I think that kind of like just sort of talking it, I think is much more useful than I'd realized. And one thing that's been interesting is people have sent me their stories, their own crying stories that, you know, mm -hmm. they're not in the book, but they're just like, Hey, I read this. I want to share this thing with you. And so that's been something too, where people are just sharing this stuff. And I do think, yeah, that just like sort of vocalizing something, even if it's still there and it's still scary or stressful or um, depressing, you at least know there's like other people that are going through it and, as much as these stories in the book are super singular, there's also like echoes of other people's experiences in them, I think. So even if you're just like, you know, I'm on an airplane crying or I'm dealing with this scary thing and I'm crying, there's other people that have gone through that in one version of yeah, it or another. Yeah, universality. Yeah, so there's not like, you're not like, I'm the only one who's ever done this, you're the only one who's done that. And I think that's helpful. There is such a mix in this book of contributors 
And you talked about that a little bit as far as like people that you found on Twitter. But can you talk about kind of some of the standouts or just like the interesting melange of humans you have in the book? For sure. Like, I think one thing that I've really enjoyed is people who are, you know, writers, professional writers like, you know, Sloan Crosley or Gia Tolentino or Eileen Miles, you know, mixed with these people who've never written anything maybe. And one thing I really appreciated is, you know, we sent everyone in the book a copy of the book, obviously. And one person who's in the book, Pepper Hart, writes about how when she got her envelope, she actually saved the envelope because it said like Simon & Schuster on it. And she's kind of like, you know, wow, like I'm in published, I'm in something published by Simon & Schuster, which is a, a kind cool. of an amazing thing, you know? So I think there's yeah. that kind of aspect where it's people, maybe for many people, it's the first thing they've ever written that's in print, mixed with these kind of more like old school people. And we did this reading in Brooklyn um, a few weeks ago and Eileen Miles read, who I feel like is maybe one of the best like performers and readers that you'll see and just so at ease and so funny and so charismatic. And so they did their piece and then they kind of started talking about in their piece, the word cuz is there, like, you know, because abbreviated and mm -hmm. it's like dash cuz. And I lean on this whole thing about like, oh God, I hate when there's a dash in there. It's kind of joking, you know, but it's kind of this really funny <laughs> thing about like thou guys. So I was thinking like, there's that level of person. And then there are other readers there who are all amazing, but people who are maybe it's the first thing they've ever read. It's the first time. Mm -hmm. There was actually someone there who's the first time they've ever read something and the first time they wrote something. And I think that I love, like the contrast of like the super at ease professional writer, poet, and the person who's publishing something for the first time. Brandon Stosi, founder and editor-in-chief of The Creative Independent and author of this book we've been talking about, Sad Happens. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a real treat. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. KCRW is Juliana Mayo. By the way, Sad Happens is out now. You can catch a reading of some of the essays in L.A. in January. Tomorrow on Greater LA, middle school kids who are composting as proactive tool to save the planet. But now to yet another iconic LA eatery that couldn't get saved. For nearly 50 years, Cafe Tropical was the friendly purple Cuban joint off Sunset. It was a place to grab a flaky guava pastry or a tasty sandwich. And it was a place for community. So why did it close down last week so quickly and what comes next? Our friend Mona Holmes writes for Eater LA, and she's with us regularly to talk all things food, and she's here to fill us in. Hey, Mona. Hi, Steve. Before we dive into what happened, I, I guess we should talk a little bit about the history of Cafe Tropical. How did it open up, and why did it have such an important role in the Silver Lake neighborhood? Because it was just a special place. It was just one of those businesses in Silver Lake that just managed to have staying power because people loved it. It opened in 1975 as Tropical Ice Cream. 
And Silver Lake was very different than it is now, of course. It was very Latino, very blue collar. And it was always busy on this bustling street corner. And the menu stayed the same almost forever. <laughs> it had this incredible presence. I mean, you mentioned the shade of purple. I, I don't even have a good description of what <laughs> this shade of purple is. Um, so it was not only the place to get a really good pastry and coffee, it was also an amazing place to people watch. You would see people of all backgrounds gather. You would see Mexicans, Salvadorans, um, you know, Cubans actually wearing guayaveras, um, writers, or just folks like me. It just felt good to be there. I, I used to very much love the place when I lived in the neighborhood. Let's talk a little bit about the food, because that's the thing, right? I mean, what items are you going to miss the most? I can answer that very quickly. Uh, the Café Con Leche was my go-to. Yeah. They had a, a very yummy medianoche sandwich, but I think everyone went there for the guava pastry with cheese, period. <laughs> you know, but the, and the thing about it was the food was good, but it was also a community gathering place. Talk a little bit about that. In, in the 90s, it became this place where people in recovery could come to meet and have AA meetings. And and I'll tell you, when I, I, I didn't know this until I was sitting outside just hanging out. And after a few minutes, a group of people emerged looking very serious while gulping coffee and chain smoking. And I could hear one of them talk about how they appreciated someone's share, you know, a term that's very common in AA meetings. And I knew that one of those meetings had just concluded. So there was a small backspace where a lot of these meetings held and others as well. And that meant a lot to them. The Los Angeles Times did some excellent reporting. Uh, one of their columnists, Lucas Kwan Peterson, has a great story that came out earlier this week. And these meetings, you know, it, it helped define the space. The big question here, Mona, is what happened, right? I mean, it's a changing neighborhood. It's a gentrifying neighborhood. The clientele is different. It costs way more money to to operate a business. Um, but it just happened with no warning. It seemed like it just happened overnight. Well, as someone who covers this industry, this is the hardest business to make work. <laughs> it has a high failure rate. And... A new owner was brought on in 2019. His name is Daniel Navarro. He bought the cafe uh, that year. He also owns El Cochinito, which is right down the street, and Bolita, which is a, a cocktail bar. There was a sign in the window announcing its closure last month, uh, late last month, um, and everyone was stunned. It was a handwritten note just saying that this is, this is it. Uh, but there was more reporting by the Los Angeles Times that uncovered a lawsuit that was at play. And according to court documents between Navarro and his mother Gladys, he failed to repay her more than $350,000 he owed to her. And the court documents say that he wasn't supposed to operate Cafe Tropical through El Cochinito. And it, the lawsuit says that he's accused of taking out loans for the new venture and incurring a huge debt. And then there's also the issue of back rent, which was filed by Cafe Tropical's landlord in November. So. Unfortunately, this is, you know, a, a sad story about, you know, how difficult it is to operate a restaurant and operating um, a business with family and agreements. And, and I don't think this is the last that we're going to hear of it because the case is ongoing. The case is ongoing, right? But it's, it's presumably the last we're going we're gonna to hear about Cafe Tropical, right? And the fact that 
<laughs> where are we going to get these sandwiches? Where are we going to get the, you know, all of the, the pastries there? I know, I know. Listen, does does it live on somewhere else? Uh, well, Cafe Tropical, uh, I don't think, I mean, I, I can't really speak to that. Um, but I, you know, there are plenty of places to go and get Cuban bakeries. There's Gigi's Cafe Cubano, there's Porto's. Um, we have our options here. They're not nearly as prominent as other areas of the country, but, you know, you can still get your cortado and your guava pastries elsewhere, and they do just as good of a job. Viva Cafe Tropical, at least in our hearts and minds. Mona Holmes, writer over at Eater LA, of course, our regular here at Greater LA. Mona, as always, thank you. Happy holidays to you. You too, Steve. That's going to do it for us this evening. Coming up next, it's Today Explained in Mere Moments. Why something that happens biologically to half the world's population is still such a mystery. Stick around. It's yours coming up next. Join us online anytime at kcrw.com slash GLA. While you're there, tell us how you're doing. Share a story idea with us. Get the podcast, too, so you can get the show on the go. All there at kcrw.com slash greater LA. And you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts by searching KCRW greater LA. It's as easy as that. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Sue Margulies, Amy Todd, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordall. All helped put this evening's episode together. I'm Steve Chitakis. Have a great night. Bye-bye. <laughs>